0: to the Royal Institution Science Podcast, bringing you thought-provoking lectures from the world's sharpest minds. Today's episode is a recording from our historic series of discourses. Annal Seth, neuroscientist and science communicator, takes us through the mechanisms of consciousness. Annal picks apart how we experience the world around us, how we can measure consciousness and what our conscious reality really is.
1: Two out of the three fundamental mysteries about our place in the universe have already been resolved. The first is literally about our place in the universe. Many years ago, Copernicus told us that we were not at its center, that we were just a tiny dot suspended in the abyss. The second mystery, Darwin then revealed that we are humans are just one branch or one twig of a beautifully rich and delicate evolutionary tree and that much of the machinery of life is shared even with the lowliest of our fellow creatures. The third mystery is that of consciousness, our inner universe. Now, Earlier this year, for the third time in my life, I ceased to exist. As the propofol anesthetic flowed from the cannula in my wrist into my bloodstream and then into my brain, there was a falling apart, a blackness, an absence. And then I was back, drowsy and disoriented, but definitely there, And when you wake from a deep sleep, you might be confused what time it is, especially if you've been flying somewhere, but you'll know that some time has passed. There seems to be some basic continuity between your consciousness then and your consciousness now. But coming around from a general anaesthetic, it could have been five minutes, it could have been five hours, it could have been five days or five years. I was simply not there, a premonition of the, the oblivion of death. And general anaesthesia doesn't just work on your brain, it doesn't just work on your mind, it works on your consciousness. By altering the delicate electrochemical circuitry inside your head, the basic ground state of what it is to be is temporarily abolished. And in this process lies one of the greatest remaining mysteries in science and philosophy. How does consciousness happen? and Why is life in the first person? The modern incarnation of this problem is usually traced to Descartes who in the 17th century distinguished between matter stuff, res extensa, the stuff that these desks are made of, that clothes are made of, but also that brains and bodies are made of, material stuff, and res cogitans, the stuff of thought, of feelings, the stuff of consciousness. And in making this this distinction he gave rise to the now infamous mind-body problem and life has never been simple ever since. Descartes actually generated even more mischief with his doctrine of the beast machine, which I'm going to mention now because it anticipates where I'm going to end up as the bell rings. Before Descartes, people commonly believed in something called the great chain of being, with rocks and plants at one end, and other non-human animals a bit higher up than humans, and then angels and gods at the very top. And this great scale of being was also a scale of moral virtue, so that humans had more moral um Virtues and animals, than plants, and then rocks, and so on. Now, Descartes, uh, he, in making this division between mind and matter, argued that only humans had minds, and therefore moral status, while other animals didn't have minds. They were merely ph- physiological machines or beast machines, morally equivalent to plants and to rocks. And in this view, the physiological mechanisms that give rise to the property of being alive were not relevant to the presence of mind or consciousness. And I'm going to propose, at the end of this talk, the opposite, that our conscious sense of self arises because of, and not in spite of the fact that we too are beast machines. So to get there, let's return to the apparent mystery of consciousness. Now, as recently as 1989, which is quite a while ago, but not that long ago, Stuart Sutherland, who was Founding Professor of Experimental Psychology at my University of Sussex, had this to say, "'Consciousness is a fascinating but elusive phenomenon. It is impossible to specify what it is, what it does, or why it evolved. Nothing worth reading has been written on it.'" <laughs> it's quite a pessimistic point of view. And that may have been true then, I don't think it was true then, but in any case, things have changed a lot since. Uh, and more or less about the time that Sutherland made these remarks, uh, we can see the birth, the rebirth of the study of consciousness within the neurosciences. And a good landmark is this paper by Francis Crick and Christof Koch, published in 1990. And they start their paper by saying that it is remarkable that most of the work in cognitive sciences. And the neurosciences makes no reference to consciousness or awareness at all. And then they go on to propose their own theory of, of what the neural correlates of consciousness are, what it is in the brain that is responsible for being conscious. And since then, over the last 25 years, there's been first a trickle and now a deluge of research on the brain basis of conscious experience. And this is a real change of the tide. When I started out... Um, more than twenty years ago, it was thought to be a very thought to be career suicide to want to study consciousness scientifically, and it may still be. We don't know yet. Let's, let's see. So while the brain basis of consciousness is still a mystery, it is in some sense an accessible mystery. And the author Mark Haddon put this very nicely, I think. He said the raw material of consciousness is not on the other side of the universe. It didn't happen 14 billion years ago, and it's not squirreled away deep inside an atom. The raw material of consciousness is right here, inside your head. You can hold a brain in your hands. But the brain won't deliver its secrets very easily. What's extraordinary about the brain is not so much the number of neurons, though there are about 90 billion. It's not even the number of connections, though there are so many that if you counted one every second, it would take you... About three million years to finish counting. What's truly extraordinary are the patterns of connectivity, which to a large extent are still not known, but within which are inscribed everything that makes you, you. The challenge is then this, at least the way I see it. How can the structure and dynamics of the brain, in connection with the body and the environment, account for the subjective phenomenological properties of consciousness? And considering things this way, we come up against what the philosopher David Chalmers has often called the hard problem of consciousness. And the idea is this, there is an easy problem. The easy problem is to understand how the combined operations of the brain and the body give rise to perception, to cognition, to thinking, to learning, to behavior, how the brain works, in other words. The hard problem is to understand why and how any of this should have anything to do with consciousness at all. Why aren't we just robots or philosophical zombies without any inner universe. Now, there's a tempting intuition here, which is that even if we solve the hard problem, even if we solve the easy problem, the hard problem would still remain as mysterious as it seems now. But this just seems wrong-headed to me. It may not be necessary to explain why consciousness exists at all in order to make progress in understanding its material basis. And this, for me, is the real problem of consciousness. How to account for its various properties in terms of biological mechanisms without pretending that it doesn't exist at all, as you do if you solve the easy problem, and without trying to account for why it's part of the universe in the first place, which is sort of the hard problem. And in the history of science, we've been somewhere similar before. It's hard to say if it's exactly the same situation. But in our understanding of life, eminent biochemists of the time found it entirely mysterious how biological mechanisms could give rise to the property of being alive. And there were proposals of things like Elon Vital and Essence Vital and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, And although we don't yet understand everything about life, this initial sense of mystery about life has to a large extent dissolved as biologists have just got on with the business of understanding the properties of living systems in terms of mechanisms. An important part of this story was the realization that life is not just one thing, but rather a constellation of partially dependent and partially separable processes, like metabolism, homeostasis, reproduction. In the same way, to make progress on the real problem of consciousness, it can be useful to distinguish different aspects or dimensions of what it is to be conscious. The space of possible minds, if you like. And one simple classification is into conscious level, Um, which is the property of being conscious at all. For example, the difference between being in a dreamless sleep or under general anesthesia and being awake and conscious as you are now. And the conscious content, when you are conscious, you're conscious of something. Uh, The myriad sights, sounds, smells, emotions, feelings and beliefs that populate your inner universe at any one time. And one thing you're conscious of when you are conscious is the experience, the specific experience of being you, And this is conscious self, and it's the third dimension of consciousness. Now, I don't claim that these distinctions mark completely independent aspects of what it is to be conscious, but they're a useful, pragmatically useful way of breaking down the problem a bit. So let's start with conscious level. What are the fundamental brain mechanisms that underlie our ability to be conscious at all? And we can think of this, at least to a first approximation, as a scale from being completely unconscious, as if you're in a coma or under general anesthesia, to being uh, awake, alert, fully conscious as you are now. And there's various states in between being drowsy, being mildly sedated, and so on. What's important is that while being conscious and being awake often go together, this is not always the case. For instance, when you are dreaming, you are asleep, but you're having conscious experiences, the conscious experiences of your dreams. And on the other side of this uh, this diagram, There are pathological states, like the vegetative state, where physiologically you will go through sleep-wake cycles, but there is nobody at home. There is no consciousness happening. So what are the specific mechanisms that underlie being conscious and not simply being physiologically awake? Well, there are a number of possibilities. Is it the number of neurons? Well, actually, probably not. There are more neurons in your cerebellum, there's a bit at the back of your brain, than in the rest of your brain put together. In fact, there are about four times more neurons in your cerebellum than in the rest of your cortex. But if you have damage to your cerebellum, yeah, you'll have some problems with coordination and other things, some cognitive problems, but you won't lose consciousness. It's not just the number of neurons. It doesn't seem to be any particular region, in fact. There are regions that if you suffer damage, you will permanently lose consciousness, the Intralaminar nuclei in the thalamus deep inside the brain. But these seem to be more like on-off switches than actual generators of, of conscious experience. It's not even neural activity, at least not simple kinds of neural activity. Uh, your brain is still highly active during unconscious states, during dreamless sleep. And even if your brain is highly synchronized, one of the first theories of consciousness was it depended on neurons firing in synchrony with each other. If your brain is too synchronized, you will lose consciousness. And this happens in states of absence epilepsy. What seems to be the case is that being conscious at all depends on how different brain regions talk to each other in specific ways. And this is some groundbreaking work by uh, Marcello Massimini in, in Milan about 10 years ago. And what he did here was he stimulated the cortex of the brain, with a brief pulse of electromagnetic energy using a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. And then he used EEG, electroencephalography, to listen to the brain's echo. It's a little bit like banging on the brain and listening to its electrical uh, response. When you stimulate the brain in a sleep condition, there is still a response, there's still an echo, but the echo stays very localized to the point of stimulation. It doesn't travel around very much, it doesn't last very long. But when you stimulate a conscious brain, there's a spatio-temporally complex response. This echo bounces around all over the cortex in very interesting ways. What's more, the complexity of this echo can be quantified. You can apply uh, some simple algorithms to describe how, uh, how complex, how rich this pattern of interactivity is. This is also from the Milan group. And what they've done here is they basically look at the echo as it moves around the brain, and they see the extent to which you could describe it, the minimum description length, how much can you compress the image of that echo, much the same way that algorithms make uh, compressed files from digital images in your phone. And um, they come up with an index called the Perturbation Complexity Index. And what you find is you now have a number that you can attach to how conscious you are. And this is, I think, really intriguing because it's a first step towards having an actual measurement of conscious level. And you can immediately see that techniques like this might already have clinical value in diagnosing what potential for consciousness patients might have after severe brain injury. Now, at Sussex, we are continuing work along these lines. We actually uh, look, instead of bashing on the brain with this sharp pulse of energy, we want to see whether we can get something similar just by recording the spontaneous activity of the brain. So we look at spontaneous dynamics from, in this case, waking state and anesthesia. This is work with... Uh, my PhD student, Michael Schatner, and Adam Barrett. We measure its complexity, and indeed, we find that we can distinguish different levels of consciousness just by the spontaneous activity of the brain. More recently, we've applied the same measures to sleep, in this case, taking advantage with colleagues in Milan of recordings taken from directly within the human cerebral cortex. These are implanted electrodes. And we see much the same story. If you compare the complexity of wakeful rest and early non-REM sleep where you're not dreaming very much, you see that complexity falls a great deal. What's interesting here is if you compare wakeful rest to REM sleep where people will often report dreams if you wake them up, the level of complexity is very much as it is during the wakeful state. There's something else going on here, which is that the complexity in the frontal part of the brain seems to be higher than in other parts of the brain. That's something we still don't understand uh, fully yet. I just wanted to give you something hot off the press, so to speak, which is we've also been applying these measures now to data taken from people under the influence of psychedelic drugs, psilocybin, ketamine, and and LSD. And what we find, at least in our hands to start with here, is that the level of complexity actually increases as compared to the baseline state, which is not something we've seen before in any other application of these measures. Now, why why is this business of measurement important? And I want to make a general point here, which is that if you're trying to naturalize a phenomenon which seems mysterious, the ability to measure it is usually one of the most important steps you can take. So this brings me to my first take-home message. Measurement is important, and consciousness, conscious level, depends on a complex balance of differentiation and integration in brain dynamics, reflecting the fact that conscious experiences themselves are both highly informative and always integrated. Now, when we are conscious, we are conscious of something. So what are the brain mechanisms that determine the content of consciousness? And the hero for this part of the story is the German physicist and physiologist, Hermann von Helmholtz. And he proposed the idea that the brain is a kind of prediction machine, uh, that what we see, hear, and feel are nothing other than the brain's best guess, about the causes of sensory inputs. And the basic idea is, again, quite simple. The brain is locked inside its bony skull and has very indirect access to the external world. All it receives are ambiguous and noisy sensory signals, which are highly indirectly related to this external world of objects, and so on, if there is an external world of objects out there at all. (laughs) Don't know about that. Uh, Perception in this view is, by necessity, a process of inference in which the brain uh, interprets these ambiguous and noisy sensory signals with respect to some prior expectations or beliefs about the way the world is. And this forms the brain's best guess of the causes of the sensory signals that are impacting our sensory surfaces all the time. What we see is the brain's best guess of what's out there. I want to give you a couple of examples that illustrate this process. It's quite easy to do, in a way. Uh, Here are two spectrograms. This is something called sine wave speech. And what you see here are two time frequency representations of speech sounds. The one on the top has all the sharp acoustical features that pervade normal speech removed, a little bit like thresholding an image. And uh, the bottom is is something else. So I'm gonna play you the the top first and let's see what it sounds like. Music. And now I'll play you something else. Jazz
0: and swing fans like fast music.
1: So I hope you all understood that piece of sage advice. Um, and now, if I play the original sound again, Jazz and swing fans like fast music. yeah, <laughs> so it's exactly the same. You, 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 again, all that's change is what we expect that sound to signify. Jazz one and swing more time, fans just for that. Like Yes. It's not just a bunch of noisy whistles, it's speech. Now, this typical framework for thinking about these kinds of effects is Bayesian inference, and this is a form of probabilistic reasoning, which is applicable in all sorts of domains, not just in, in neuroscience, and medical diagnosis, all sorts of things, finding lost submarines. Um, and, but in neuroscience, we talk about the Bayesian brain, and it's a way of formalizing Helmholtz's idea that perception is, uh, is a form of best guessing. And the idea is that sensory signals and prior beliefs can be represented as probability distributions. So, for instance, this yellow curve is the probability of something being the case. Maybe that you've got a brief glimpse of an object moving to the right. The sensory data may say something different. It may have a a probability that peaks at a different um, angle of movement. Maybe it's drifting in a different direction. And the optimal combination of the prior and the likelihood the yellow curve and the red curve, is this green curve, which we would call the posterior distribution. And that represents the best optimal combination of these two sorts of evidence. And the idea is, well, that's what we perceive. Thinking about perception in this way does something rather strange to the way, classically in neuroscience, people have thought about perception. The classical view is that the brain processes sensations. This is a a picture of the visual system of the monkey. And the idea is that information comes in through the retina, it then goes through the thalamus, it then goes through the back of the brain. And as the sensory signals percolate deeper and deeper and deeper into the brain, uh, they encode or represent progressively more sophisticated features of objects. So you start out at early levels of visual cortex with response to luminance and edges, and then higher up to uh, objects, including other monkeys. What's important here is that the, the perceptual heavy lifting is done by information flowing in this bottom-up or feed-forward direction. Now, the Bayesian brain idea says something very different. It says that what's really important are the top-down or inside-out connections that flow from the center of the brain back out. And we've known for a long time there's a large number, a very large number of these connections, and some descriptions more than flow the other way around. But their function has been rather mysterious. Thinking about the Bayesian brain gives us a nice way to interpret this, which is that it's exactly these top-down or inside-out connections that convey predictions from high levels of the brain to lower levels to lower levels, back out to the sensory surfaces. So these blue arrows convey the brain's predictions about the causes of sensory signals. And then what flows in the feed-forward or bottom-up direction from the outside in That's just the prediction error, the difference between what the brain expects and what it gets at each level of description. So this is often called predictive coding or predictive processing in in some uh, formal frameworks. And the idea is that minimization of prediction error then occurs across all levels of this hierarchy at the same time. And what we then perceive is the consequence of this joint minimization of prediction error. So you can think of perception as a sort of controlled hallucination in which our perceptual predictions are being reined in at all points by sensory information from the world and the body. So there's a lot of evidence that top-down connections in the brain are important for perception, is, is the basic message there. But what's rather strange, and what I'm going to tell you next, is that All this stuff is all very good, but predictive processing is not a theory of consciousness. Nothing I've said has anything to do with consciousness at all. It has to do... It's a very general theory of how brains do what they do, how they do perception, how they do cognition, how they do action. So somewhat counterintuitively, I think this is exactly why it's a great theory of consciousness. (laughs) And the reason I think this is because it allows us to ask all sorts of questions about the real problem about what it is, what happens in brains that underlies what you happen to be conscious of right now without getting sucked into the metaphysical plug hole of why you're conscious in the first place. In other words, it provides a powerful approach to looking for neural correlates of consciousness, those things in the brain that go along with being conscious. So what does predictive processing, or the Bayesian brain, say about consciousness specifically? Well, many years ago, some influential experiments revealed a very strong connection between top-down signaling and conscious contents. In this example by Alvaro Pascaleone and Vincent Walsh, uh, what they did was they had people look at visual motion, examples of visual motion. And they used TMS, this this interventional technique where you can zap the brain very briefly. I mentioned it before. But they used it here specifically to interrupt the top-down signaling that was um, evoked by this perception of visual motion. And the result was that if you interrupted specifically the top-down feedback, you would abolish the conscious perception of visual motion, even if you left the bottom-up signaling intact. So that was an early cue. Now, more recently, uh, in our lab and in many other labs all over the place, we've been uh, asking some other questions about the relationship between what you expect and what you consciously experience. One of the most basic questions you can ask is, do we consciously see what we expect to see? Or do we see what violates our expectations of what what we expect? And a recent study from our group, um, led by Yaya Pinto, used a method called continuous flash suppression to address this question. It's illustrated here. You see different images in the different eyes. In one eye, you see this rapidly changing uh, Mondrian pattern of of squares. And in the other eye, you'll either see a face or a house. And they they change contrast like this. So initially, the person will just see this random pattern, and then they'll see either a house or a face. And simply, you just ask them to expect to see. You just tell them a face is more likely or a house is more likely. And what we find over a number of studies is that we see faces more quickly when that's what we're expecting to see. It may seem obvious, but it could be the other way around. At least in these studies, we see what we expect to see, not what violates our expectations. That's the data. Um, and the same goes for houses. These kinds of studies support the idea that it's the top-down predictions that are really important for determining what we're conscious of. So can any of these ideas say anything about our everyday visual experience? And I think that's a very important challenge in neuroscience to cross, get out of the lab the lab, and think about real-world experiences. So we've been using virtual reality over the last few years to try to get at some of these ideas. This is an Oculus Rift, which is now available to buy, I think, or consume. And we've been using these to address some of these real-world aspects of visual perception. And one of these real-world aspects is called perceptual presence. And this is the observation that, in normal perception, objects really seem to be there, as opposed to being images of objects. And this is, of course, what Magritte plays with in his famous painting, The Treachery of Images. for instance, you know, this is an object, I think it 's there, and in some sense, I can perceive the back of it, even though i can 't see the back of it, even though the back of it 's not giving me any sensory data, I perceive it as an object with a back. How does one explain that? well, one idea you can come up with within this Bayesian brain framework is that the brain is not only predicting the 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 possible causes of the sig- sensory signal it's getting right here, right now, but it's also predicting how sensory signals would change were I to make particular actions, were I to pick this object up and move it around, or just move my eyes from one place to another. And how do you test an idea like that? So we've been using some uh, innovative virtual reality methods, or augmented reality methods, with um, my postdoc, Kesuke Suzuki. And what we do is we have virtual objects, and these virtual objects, Well, they either behave as a normal object would. They're all weird, unfamiliar objects, but they can either behave as a normal object would behave. So you can learn to predict what would happen. This one is weird. It always shows you the same face, a little bit like having the moon on a plate in front of you. Uh, And then there are other conditions where objects respond to your movements, but they do so in unreliable and uh, strange ways. So the question is, what does the brain learn about these objects and... um, how do we experience them? Do we experience them as objects in different ways when they behave differently? And we're still doing those experiments. Another way we can use VR is to investigate what happens in visual hallucinations of the kind experienced in psychosis and in certain other more pharmacologically induced conditions. And understanding how visual hallucinations might happen and how the wider effects they have on the mind, I think, is a very important part of studying visual perception. So that brings us to the second take-home message, which is that what we consciously see is the brain's best guess of the causes of its sensory input. Normal perception is a fantasy that is constrained by reality. Now, before I move on to the last section, I want to pay tribute to an unlikely character in a talk about neuroscience, which is Ernst Gombrich. Ernst Gombrich was one of the foremost historians of art of the 20th century. And it turns out that Gombrich's understanding, approach to understanding art, had a lot in common with ideas in the Bayesian brain, and more specifically with the idea that perception is largely an act of imagination or construction on the part of the perceiver. And this is most apparent in his concept of the beholder's share, which emphasizes that the viewer brings an awful lot to the table in the act of experiencing an artwork. So he had this to say in his 1960 book, Art and Illusion. The artist gives the beholder more to do. He draws him into the magic circle of creation and allows him to experience something of the thrill of making which had once been the privilege of the artist. And you know, I think, for me, this is very powerful when looking at especially things like impressionist art. And here, one way to think about this is that the artist has reverse-engineered the whole perceptual process uh, so that what we, what, what's there are not the objects, the endpoints of perception, but rather the raw materials, the patterns of light that engage our perceptual machinery in doing its work. Now, the final dimension of consciousness I want to talk about is conscious self, the fundamental experience of being someone, being someone like you. There are many aspects to our experience of being a conscious self. There is the bodily self, the experience of being and identifying with a particular body, a bit of the world that goes around with you in the world all the time. There's the perspectival self, the experience of seeing the world or experiencing the world from a particular first-person perspective, usually somewhere in the body, but not always. There's the volitional self, the experience of intending to do things and of making things happen in the world, of agency. And These ideas are, of course, often associated with concepts of... Will. Then there's the narrative self. This is where the this is only until now we can don't have to worry about the concept of I, but when we get to the narrative self, there is now an I. There is a continuity of self experience from hour to hour, from day to day, from month to month, and from year to year that you associate a name with and a particular set of autobiographical memories. And finally, there's a social self. The way I experience being me. It's partly dependent on the way I perceive you as perceiving me. I'm just going to talk in the minutes that remain about the bodily self. This is something we're working on quite a lot in Sussex. The experience of identifying with and owning a particular body. And the basic idea I want to convey is, again, very simple. It's just that we should think of our experience of body ownership in the same way that we think about our experience of other things as well. That is, it's the brain's best guess of the causes of body-related signals. And the brain is always making this inference. It's making its inference about what in the world is part of the body and what is not part of the body. But it has access, in this case, to other sorts of sensory signals, not just visual signals or tactile signals, but also proprioceptive signals. These inform the brain about the body's configuration and position in space. And then also, and often overlooked, are interoceptive signals. These are signals that originate from within the body, that tell the brain about the physiological state or condition of the inside, of the internal physiological milieu. An important part of this idea is that interoception, the sense of the body from within, should work along the same principles, the same Bayesian principles, that we've been thinking about previously. That is, our experience of the inside of our bodies uh, is the brain's best guess of the causes of the signals that come from the inside of our bodies. So we can think of, again, top-down predictions, carrying predictions about what the bodily state is like, and bottom-up prediction errors that report the differences between uh, what's going on and what the brain expects. Now, another part of our experience of being a body is the body as a physical object in the world. And this might seem quite easy to take for granted, since our physical body is just always there. It goes, it goes around with us. It, changes you know, over the years in, in you know, unfortunate ways, but it's always there. And, um, but it would be a mistake to take our experience of body ownership for granted. And there are some classic experiments that demonstrate how malleable our experience of body ownership is. This is the famous rubber hand experiment. Probably some of you have seen this. What happens here is that uh, a, a volunteer has their hand hidden under a table and a fake hand is put on top of the table, and then both hands are simultaneously stroked with a paintbrush. And it turns out that just seeing a hand-like object where a hand might be, feeling touch, and then seeing that object being touched is enough evidence that the brain's best guess becomes that that fake hand is in fact part of my body, sort of part of my body. So that's interesting, because that's using, uh, that's using visual and tactile signals to convince the brain that this object is part of its body. In my lab, we've been interested in whether these signals that come from inside the body also play a role. So we set up a virtual reality version of this rubber hand illusion where people uh, wear these goggles and they see a virtual fake hand. And we also record their heartbeats. So now what we can do is we can make the virtual hand flash either in time or out of time with their heartbeat. And we ask the question, do people experience this virtual hand as more belonging to them when it's flashing in time rather than out of time with their heartbeat? And the answer is that it does. And this is just some, some data, basically that bigger than that, which means that indeed they experience the hand as, as more their own. The way we measure that actually is that uh, first we can ask them, that's the easiest way, but then we can also ask them to point to where they think their hand really is. And we can see how far they drift from where their hand really is to where the virtual hand is. And that provides a more objective way of measuring the strength of the effect. You can also do some other things with these virtual reality rubber hands that you couldn't do with real rubber hands. For instance, you can map movements of the real hand to the virtual hand. So you can start to ask questions about the extent to which the, the virtual hand moves as I predict it to move. How much does that affect? the extent to which I feel it to be part of my body. You can make it change color. So you can have somebody embody uh, a, a skin color associated with a cultural outgroup and see if they become less racist as a result. <laughs> and then my favorite is where you can change actually the size of the body. So here what we do is we can, we can have the, the hand telescope up and down in size. And again, this might seem like fun, and it is fun, but there is a serious purpose. There are various conditions. There's in fact a condition called Alice in Wonderland syndrome, where people report that parts of their body are indeed telescoping up and down in size. And in a more subtle way, there are lots of body dysmorphias, of subtle misperceptions of body shape, which might be associated with with eating disorders. And so these sorts of techniques allow us to to approach in a very fine-grained way how people might misperceive their own bodies. So, that brings me to the third take-home message about self. And with apologies to Descartes, the take-home message is that I predict myself, (laughs) therefore I am. (laughs) Now, in the last nine minutes before the bell rings, I want to go full circle and return to this Cartesian idea of the beast machine to try to convince you that our experience of being a conscious self is intimately tied up with our beast-machine nature. And to do this, I need to mention one final aspect of perceptual inference, um, which has a lot to do with with Carl Friston, who's um, done a lot of work in the Bayesian brain UCL here in London. And if we think of the brain as being in the business of minimizing prediction errors, this can be done either by updating our perceptual predictions, which is what I've been talking about so far. Um, and this is what Helm- Helmholtz said. Or we can minimize prediction errors by making actions. We can change what we predict, or we can make an action so that our predictions come true. You can change your sensory input, or you can change what you believe about your sensory input. One point of doing this is that you can make actions then to find out more about the world that you, that's around you. And this is what Helmholtz has in mind when he says that each movement we make by which we alter the appearance of objects should be thought of as an experiment designed to test whether we've understood correctly the invariant relations of the phenomena before us. Richard Gregory much later said something similar when he talked about perception as hypothesis testing. The point of this is that we make eye movements and other kinds of movements to understand what the world is like, that in fact there is a tomato there, for instance. But there's another way to think about active inference, which is that when we minimize prediction error, what we're actually doing is controlling a sensory variable. We're preventing it from changing because we're making our prediction about what it is come true. And this is is the use of active inference to control or regulate something rather than to understand what the causes of that something are. And this brings a very different tradition uh, to mind, which is 20th century cybernetics. And this is Ross Ashby, who was a pioneer of this way of thinking. And uh, he, with um, Roger Conan, and uh, right at the end of his life, he wrote a paper. And the title of the paper was Every Good Regulator of a System Must Be a Model of That System. The idea here is that if you want to regulate something very precisely, uh, then you need a good model of... What affects that uh, system? Now, you could apply this idea to the external world as well. When you try to catch a cricket ball, you're actually trying to control uh, the level of the angle above the horizon. Uh, But it applies more naturally, I think, to the internal state of our body. So that really what matters about my internal physiological condition. I don't really need to know exactly what it's like inside my body, I don't care about that at all, but I need to control it. My brain needs to regulate it. So this way of thinking about active inference applies more naturally to interoception. And this brings to mind, um, I mentioned Carl Friston, he's come up with this this, uh, thing called the free energy principle, (coughs) and I can only nod to the vast body of work he's done here on this with the slogan, which is that organisms, over the long run, maintain themselves in states in which they expect to be in, in virtue of having good predictive models about uh, their own internal condition. So this takes us right back to Descartes, but in a very different way. As I said right at the beginning of this lecture, for Descartes, our physiological reality was rather irrelevant to our mind, our rationality, our consciousness. Um, this is a quote from a, a 1968 paper on, on his beast machine argument. Without minds to direct their bodily movements, animals must be regarded as unthinking, unfeeling machines that move like clockwork. Now, I think if you, if you try to, to think how this idea of, of our predictive models controlling our internal physiological states and the resulting experiences that conceptual content that might give rise to, you can make the opposite case, and the opposite case would be that conscious selfhood emerges because of and not in spite of the fact that we are beast machines. Now why does any of this matter? It's a lot of interesting ideas, but why should we be interested in studying consciousness? Well, it's a very interesting thing, I hope I've convinced you, but there are lots of practical reasons to be interested as well there are between 20 and 60,000 patients in the UK alone who are in disorders of consciousness, who so are in the vegetative state or in coma or some other severely abnormal state of consciousness. Having better measures of conscious level, as I described at the beginning, is going to really change the game in how we uh, treat people like this. And, of course, in psychiatry, psychiatry is, um, psychiatric disorders are increasing their prevalence across all uh, modern societies, and it's estimated one in six of us at any one time are suffering from a psychiatric condition. And understanding the mechanisms that underlie conscious content and conscious self, because a lot of psychiatric disorders include disturbances of the way we experience our body, even, if that, even though that might not be the most obvious symptom, can help us understand the mechanisms involved in psychiatric disorders and not just the symptoms. There are also some more general reasons for studying consciousness, which brings up some ethical questions. When does consciousness emerge in development? Are newborn babies conscious, or does consciousness start even in the womb? Maybe different dimensions of consciousness emerge at different times. Are other animals conscious? Well, I think you can make a very good case for mammals and primates, but what about the octopus? The octopus has more neurons in its arms than in its central brain. They're very smart creatures. Here, you have to ask the question, not only what is it like to be an octopus, but what is it like to be an octopus arm? (laughs) And finally, with the rise of artificial intelligence, we should begin to ask questions about what would it take for a machine to have some kind of subjective experience. I don't think we're anywhere near that yet, but we should consider what science can tell us about its possibility, because that would raise some very, very tricky ethical questions. As so often in science, with greater understanding comes a larger sense of wonder and a greater realization that we are part of and not apart from the rest of nature.
0: Well done, Anil. Thank you so much. And as usual, we have 15 minutes uh, for questions. And so if you could raise your hand in the air. um, And also if you could just wait for the microphone to come to you. Thank you so much for that excellent lecture. Um, It raised a lot of questions for me. One of which is to ask you about the relationship between consciousness, memory and identity.
1: The relationship between consciousness and memory, I think, is... is is very complex, and it plays out in many different ways, partly because there are many different kinds of memory. Um, One of the most obvious contexts this plays out in is is an episodic memory. So the, the memory of past events that are personally relevant to you, where you were yesterday, where you were a year ago. And one, there's some, I didn't focus on it today much at all, but there's some very famous case studies in the medical history. Many of you might have heard of the patient HM, Um, who had his hippocampus, part of the brain that's responsible for laying down uh, these episodic memories, removed. So for many decades, H.M. could not lay down any new memories. This had the effect that he was kind of living in this present all the time. Uh, He still had other kinds of of memory. He could learn new motor tasks, learn to draw, and, and so on. But his sort of personal narrative, his narrative self, kind of stopped at the moment that he had that that surgery. This doesn't mean he lost consciousness. What it means is that he he was clearly still conscious for the rest of his life, which lasted many decades. But the one specific part of being a conscious self was was no longer was no longer there. Uh, there's another case, Clive Wearing, who is much the same thing, due to a, a disease rather than a surgery. And he was he had was famous for having a seven-second memory to start with, and, and that was it. He lived in this present. It also meant that you couldn't, when you, when you can't remember episodes in the past, it's also more difficult to project yourself out into the future. So it's as if there's a symmetry that memory is really about the ability for mental time travel to the past or the future. But what's essential is you still, you still are conscious, and many of your aspects of being a conscious self are preserved. You still have a first person perspective, you still have a body, you still feel in control of your actions. But one aspect, has gone. So memory, I think, plays uh, a significant but it, a role, but it's not completely essential.
0: Uh, let's take some questions on this side. Um, you mentioned in your talk about the idea that one's perception of oneself usually is somewhere in, in your body, usually kind of about there. Can you shed any light on what, you know, why we sometimes feel that we're not there, we're some, somewhere outside the body?
1: So this is a question about out-of-body experiences, perhaps. Um, I think it's a a great question because uh, it's easy to dismiss something like an out-of-body experience as just inconsistent with the precepts of science. It requires some sort of dualistic idea that the soul has left the body and is floating around somewhere. I think, well, that's not what's going on, but it's also not the right way to think about it. People report out-of-body experiences, so let's trust their reports. But let's come up with a, a, a better explanation for, for what might be going on. Now, um, it turns out you can induce out of body experiences in the lab. And uh, you, by extensions of things like the rubber hand illusion, for instance, if you wear a, a, a VR headset and have a camera behind you so that the input you're getting is of your own, of the back of your body and then you do this simultaneous stroking business again, some people will perceive their first-person perspective as having shifted um, to a point behind them. And in fact, if you or I wear these VR goggles, and we swap the inputs, so I see myself through your eyes and vice versa, and then we shake hands, then we might also experience uh, an exchange of self-location. There are many different kinds of... Uh, in, without these experimental manipulations, people report a graded series of out-of-body experiences as well. There's autoscopic hallucinations where they see their body, but they still feel their body to be where they are. And then um situations where you feel that your self-location is changing between where you are and where you perceive your body double to be, and apparently Dostoevsky um, was very troubled by this. But at heart, I think the same mechanisms apply, that we, our brain gets information about where it makes most sense to locate its first-person perspective, and that's where we see the world from. And it's normally where we are, but, but there's nothing hard and fast, and if there's sufficient evidence against that, well, go with the evidence.
0: Okay, so I'd like to ask someone up in the gallery, um, uh, just there, if you see right centrally, Thank you for a fascinating lecture. And I was really struck by your perspective of consciousness. I predict myself, therefore I am. And what's striking to me about that perspective is that it is as fully applicable to us human beings as it would be to an autonomous robot that exists right now. Yet as, as conscious living beings, Our experience of consciousness seems to be essentially different from that of a robot. Is there something essential that the predictive, almost
1: mechanistic view of consciousness is missing? So I think there is actually this idea of predicting oneself points to one of the big differences between robots as they are now, or even as we imagine they might be in a few years. And us, uh, because a, a, a sort of more standard view you might be, okay, well, you've got a robot. It's got a very fast computer in there, and you've got to have, run the right program, and it will be conscious. And it's all about how it processes the external things in the world. Most robots or machines that we build don't care about their own persistence over time. They don't have predictive models that are, that are in the business of preserving some sort of deep, deeply physiological integrity about themselves. Uh, they lack a physiology. And um, I think that you know, there is no reason why we, do not, we cannot build systems that have, if you like, a kind of physiology that care about their own persistence and where everything else follows from that, that the way they perceive the world becomes a consequence of a more fundamental imperative to stay alive, but that's very different from the kinds of machines that we're building at the moment. The question is, if we were to build such a machine, would it it be conscious? The answer to that is, is I don't know. I don't think that in itself is is sufficient either, because that's still a functional description of what's what's going on. But certainly by building systems like that, we'll sharpen our intuitions about what are the remaining differences, because only by building something do we really understand how it works.
0: Um, you mentioned when consciousness arises in babies. So has there been a lot of experiments done in this area about the r- when newborns develop a sense of self-awareness and what this can tell us about the development of the brain and consciousness?
1: Uh, there's been a lot of work done on, on, on some specific aspects of, of consciousness in infants, and especially the development of self-awareness. So A classic method there is the mirror self-recognition test. You, when does a baby recognize that the image in a mirror is of itself and not of something else, another person. So this is actually also applied to animal, non-human um, animal consciousness too. And we, you know, there's, there's discussions, but the consensus is that takes at least a year, possibly two years before you have something like that, um, possibly more. There's been surprisingly little work done on other aspects of, of consciousness in babies. For instance, their ability to be perceptually conscious, to be conscious of a visual scene. Some work's been done by um, a group led by Sid Quider in Paris, where they look for some of the same neurophysiological markers that we know exist in in adult humans when we consciously perceive something. There are things like a we call a P300, which is a sign in the EEG, 300 milliseconds after a brief stimulus. If that's there in adult humans, that's a good sign that we've consciously seen something. If you look in in, in neonates and newborn babies, you see something which is intriguingly in the middle. In some cases, you'll see a late, slow response in the EEG. It doesn't look much like it does in an adult human, but it's also suggestive. Part of the issue there is that the, the, you know, the newborn brain is very, very different from the adult brain. One thing is there aren't any of these, there are very few of these fast connections linking long range different parts of the brain together. So you wouldn't expect to see the same thing anyway. Uh, but I quite like William James' idea about what it is to be a baby, which is that you know, we, we have to learn so much about how to interpret sensory data. In fact, we probably have to learn that the different senses are, in fact, different and he called the world of the newborn this blooming and buzzing confusion, as if we haven't developed the predictive models at that point to distinguish what's visual from what's, um, from what's tactile or from what's auditory.
0: Uh, the gentleman with, the, with his hand up, there,
1: please. Yeah, brilliant and, and fascinating.
0: Just um, I heard um, Daniel Dennett um, speak here, who made the point that there wasn't a hard problem of consciousness. And um, I thought that was interesting, because obviously, you know, does a microorganism move from the light to the dark or vice versa? Is that a level of consciousness? There's a clear development um, going upwards. Um, As you correctly said, chimpanzees, uh, elephants, other dolphins, and recognize themselves. Isn't it just an evolutionary development Rather than some sort of, you know, humans obviously think they're special, but, I mean, there were homos, um, you know, uh, a whole load of other species that would have recognised themselves and had that internal recognition. And so, so what, why do they call it a hard problem? And do you disagree with
1: Daniel Dennett? Oh, you say the easy question for last, right? That's... that's um, uh, yeah, I think to just a couple of Responsive to that, I, I, I think one of the res- there is this resistance to thinking that, that we can explain consciousness in, because it's, it will also, in one way, make us less special. But that's always been the thing with humanity we try to cling on to this idea that we're somehow special and different, and we aren't really that different or that special. But that's a good thing rather than a bad thing. Now, is there a hard problem? Do I agree with Dennett? Well, I read Dennett's book when I was an undergrad in 1991, Consciousness Explained. It's brilliant. It was kind of unfairly critiqued as Consciousness Explained Away by a lot of people because there's this, there's this you know, set of arguments which I think try to convince you that when we, if we're trying to understand how consciousness happens, we're trying to solve the wrong problem and that we may have the wrong intuitions about what the explanatory targets of a science of consciousness should be. And I think his arguments there can be very good about what might be reconstructed post-hoc. You know, we, when when is, does our conscious experience happen? Does it happen now? Is it partly reconstructed from the past, partly projected into the future? But um, a wise friend once told me that you should always listen to philosophers' questions, but never to their answers. <laughs>
0: Sheila Rowan explains one of the biggest discoveries of 2016, the detection of gravitational waves.